welcome to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. As usual, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Dr. Lee Johnson and Dr. Charles Peterson. How are y'all? Doing good. It's the end of the world, and I'm doing fine. (laughs) (laughs) So Romulus is looking over at us, and I think he's ready to take some drink orders. I'm not sure he's ready to hear rants and raves, but he'll hear them anyhow. (laughs) Lee, let's start with you. What are you drinking, and what are you ranting and raving about? All right, Rami, I am going to have a hot toddy. It is really starting to get cold here right at the beginning of December. And so, yeah, I'm going to try a hot toddy. My rant this week is Christmas music. So I just want to say that I actually do really like Christmas music, but I don't want it (laughs) for a whole month. And while I'm speaking of Christmas music, you guys may have heard about this, but there's this challenge. It used to be on Facebook or social media. It's called the Little Drummer Boy Challenge. It starts on Thanksgiving and you see how long you can go, how close to Christmas you can get without hearing the Little Drummer Boy. Can it be? Years from now, perhaps we'll see our finest day of glory. Say the day. So I've begun my challenge. I think I'm going to do a lot better this year because. I don't go to stores and, you know, things. So, like, that's normally where you hear it is in Walgreens or something. But, yeah, I'm I'm trying to make it all the way to Christmas without hearing the little drummer boy this year. So, I am raving this week about ping pong. Some people call it table tennis. uh, But (laughs) we recently got a ping pong set up for our dining room table. We didn't buy a ping pong table. And I thought, this is going to be lame, but it was cheap. And we were like, let's give it a try. Oh my gosh, we have had so much fun uh, playing (laughs) ping pong on our dining room table. So I forgot, like ping pong is a great game. Thumbs up for ping pong. I was kicked out of college after my first year for being high every day and playing ping pong every day. So (laughs) the warm spot in my heart. And look at you now. Look Look at at you now. Look at you. You showed them. (laughs) A podcaster. (laughs) You showed them that you can get high every day, play ping pong, and just become a host of, you know, a really small, very quiet philosophy podcast. That takes place in a bar. (laughs) There's no stopping you. There's no stopping you. (laughs) Charles, what about you? What are you drinking? What are you ranting and raving about? In the spirit of the season, I'm going to ask Rami to put together a sorrel and rum mixture for me. Sorrel is a really nice hibiscus that grows in the Caribbean. It's boiled, sweetened, and then turned into a very merry, festive Christmas drink. And rum tends to be the mixture that's added to it. So I've been with my wife for over two decades, and I've been spending the holidays with her and her family really just about the same amount of time. And sorrel with rum is one of my favorite things to drink at that time of the year with my in-law. So that's what I'm having. Hopefully, Rami, hopefully you know what the hell I'm talking about. Hopefully you can get access to some. So sorrel and rum. Now, my rave is this show called Southside that's on HBO Max. If you put the office on the south side of Chicago, this is what you get. And it is the most smart, intense hilarious, sacrilegious, and, and sacrilegious not in terms of any spiritual system, but sacrilegious in terms of things held sacred within African-American cultural politics and history. And it's guaranteed to give you at least one or two out loud, oh my God, I don't believe they just said that, moments each episode. So I'm absolutely loving <laughs> Southside. If you get a chance, check it out. It's so damn funny. I had to make myself go to bed last night because I was going to watch the entire two seasons. Call it HBO. My rant is seeing people you love in pain. 
I'm not going to go into too many details with that, mm-hmm. but just knowing you want to help them, doing everything you can to help them, and knowing that there's just there are limits to that, and just yeah. So love the people you love, and it's just hard to see them and knowing the limits to what you can do for them. So that's my rant. I mean, it's a part of the human condition, but that don't make it nice. Mm, true. What about you, Rick? What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about this week? So I am going to just have three fingers with just a small ice cube of Tullamore Dew, a nice Irish whiskey. What's the point of the the ice cube? I mean, you got three fingers going. Just... Just go neat, baby. Go neat. What's going on? (laughs) Two things. I've been duped by the whiskey industrial complex (laughs) to think that some water opens up the aromas a bit. And I actually think that's true. The second thing is if I drink whiskey neat, I get instantaneous heartburn. Oh, okay. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, I try to avoid that. So I'll say three fingers of Tullamore Dew on a rock. (laughs) (laughs) I thought the ice cube made you feel like a gentleman. No, that's my dandy costume. So uh, my rant this week is professional golf in general and maybe the PGA in particular. (laughs) I'm ranting about this because we just lost this week the great professional golfer, Lee Elder. And Lee Elder had a a successful golfing career starting in the 60s, was not invited to the Masters until 1975. Now, let me just put this in perspective. Augusta National did not accept their first African-American member until 1990. Mm. Why the PGA and all professional golfers allowed that shit to continue for as long as they did is beyond me. But wait, it gets worse. They didn't allow their first female member until 2012. Oh, my God. (laughs) So screw you, PGA. You should have stood up a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. My rave is for Proust's In Search of Lost Time. We're all intimidated. (laughs) I have a confession to make. My mm was all about like, I don't know what the fuck is going on with that, but I'm just going to nod my head knowingly. Okay, (laughs) so maybe you're all with me on this. My confession, and I think we all should be more honest about this. Mm-hmm. This is a text that probably has been talked about since I have been an undergraduate in so many classes or so many things I've read, and I have never read it, and I just started two days ago. Oh, nice. And it's really good. I'm a little daunted by the number- All five of- volumes? <laughs> yeah. But so far, Swan's Way, the first volume, I am really, really enjoying, and it's worth reading. So I'm raving this week about In Search of Lost Time. Some of you may know it by the English title, Remembrance of Things Past. My favorite Monty Python skit is their recitation of Proust's Remembrance of Things Past. The the contest of who could summarize Proust. Yeah. And and the choir was my favorite. Proust wrote about, wrote about, wrote about. Proust wrote about, wrote about. He wrote about things. (laughs) You know, that may be a nice feature to add to the podcast. Confessions of things not read. We'll have to do that at the end, though, when we've had enough drinks that we're all being honest. (laughs) You could just put me on the list of having never read anything Bronte. Okay, fair enough. All right. So, Lee, it seems like you're in the hot seat this week. So what are we talking about? this week, we're going to be talking about social media. It's kind of surprises me that we haven't gotten to this yet, but the three of us are actually not of one mind about social media. (laughs) I think of the three of us, I'm probably the most active on the most different platforms of social media. It's a regular part of my life. I know that the two of you are Well, I know Charles is more on Twitter. Rick is not much of a social media person. 
although he does have accounts on everything, so that's good. <laughs> but it turns out that last year, and part of this is due to the pandemic, but Americans spent roughly 1,300 hours on social media. So that's pushing two months of last year that people were on social media. It's a huge part of our lives now. And increasingly, it's a huge part of our politics. And so I would like to organize today's discussion in this way. I'd like us to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of social media. But I'd like to do it in reverse so that we end on a more positive note. But we got a lot of things to talk about. And so today, let's jump right in to the social media landscape. <laughs> So before we jump into talking about the good, the bad, the ugly of social media, maybe first I want to get your kind of social media profiles, both of you. What platforms are you on? What are you not on? How much do you use them? And maybe just kind of generic evaluation of social media. I'll start, if you don't mind, Rick. No. And I'll try and set up my bad, the ugly, and the good in order. So I'm on Facebook, and I'm only on Facebook in support of the podcast. I used to be on Facebook years ago really heavily, and I think after the revelations about Facebook's data mining and how that was used to help the Trump campaign gain a, a messaging edge in the 216 campaign, I was done. I was completely disgusted. And there's nothing terrible you could say about Mark Zuckerberg now that I wouldn't <laughs> gladly and easily believe. Yeah. Full stop. But I am on Facebook. To those people who see I have returned to Facebook and I'm not admitting you as a friend, I'm sorry. I'm on the gram, mm -hmm. use it very rarely. I have the account because sometimes friends will want to share things with me that only occur on Instagram and I'll have the account to open that up, take a look and then move on. I'm probably on Twitter. This is really embarrassing to say probably three or four hours a day. If my, <laughs> uh, if my iPhone is accurate, I use it pretty much as a news feed. I try to limit the types of conversations I have because there's not a whole lot you can say in depth in 240 characters, but it's fine. I, there are people that I like, people that I follow. It allows me to dip my toe into very interesting communities that I don't think I'd be able to do in other ways. So that's my summation. What about you, Rick? So I have a Facebook account. I have in the past at times maybe used it more heavily, but almost not at all even from the beginning. And I only go on to manage the History of Philosophy Society's group page. And then when Lee gets on my back enough, I go on and post about the podcast. <laughs> I'm literally over here wagging my fingers at them right now. <laughs> no tips of the hat, just a wag of the finger. <laughs> to my high school classmates, I'm sorry I haven't seen your children. I actually don't care about them. And because I rarely post, you probably Thanks don't. Thanks for listening to the pod. <laughs> <laughs> and supporting Fresca. Twitter, when I first joined Twitter, I was fairly active. And I was posting a lot and I was following people who I was interested in and so on. The problem is, and Lee, I guess we're going to get right into the heart of it, but my own, how would I put it? My own cognitive relationship to the world is such that I think most things are my fault. <laughs> and because that's the way I engage the world, I don't need actual people telling me that shit is my fault. <laughs> and it just takes two steps from a post to someone screaming at you that I just then crawl up in a ball under my cozy blanket and I just want to go to sleep. And, and so I have to be incredibly careful about my use of and relationship to social media because it can be really debilitating for me. So I know what I'm getting you for Christmas. You're getting a shirt that says, blame me. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'll always wear under all of my clothes. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said earlier, I'm pretty active on social media. I'm on TikTok. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Those are the main ones that I use, I would say, every day. 
Instagram is one that I sometimes forget is on my phone. And then when I remember that it's on my phone, I'll post a lot of pictures or look through it. It's not the one that I use the most. I forgot. I do have an Instagram account and I use it for two things. One is for the a first year class that I teach. They ask us to post pictures. The university does, which I do. And then Every once in a while, I need to look at the the photographs of a person whose Instagram handle is the doggest, and I just need to look at cute dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Instagram is good for cute pets. So yeah, Instagram I probably use the least. TikTok, if I'm in a space where something else is not requiring my attention, I'm on TikTok. If I'm standing in a line, if I'm sitting on the couch, I'm looking at TikTok. Facebook used to be my main social media outlet. I got very close to the same decision that Charles made around 2016. I thought about quitting Facebook, as a lot of people were doing. I think for me, I stay on Facebook because it's got 15 years of my life there, almost 15 years of my life there. And I'd hate to lose that. I do actually like the fact that you can see memories, things that you posted, things that you did. Most of my photos are on Facebook. They're not on Instagram. So I keep it for that reason. But I will say that Facebook is very, very, very different than it used to be. So Facebook used to be the place where I got news. Most of my friends on Facebook are academics. And so that's where I would get tips to interesting articles to read or interesting things that were happening. People would have interesting conversations in the comments. And once Facebook changed their wall format and their algorithms a little bit, it just kind of all disappeared. And I'd see the same people over and over again, which is fine. But there's not a lot of interesting conversations that go on there. I don't get to see articles or posts that I wouldn't have otherwise found myself. So Facebook is just kind of leftover from a better era, I think. Although, of course, now in retrospect, we know there was never really a good era of Facebook. But Twitter now is where I get my news and where I follow cultural conversations and learn what is happening right, literally right this second. And I really do love Twitter. I think that Twitter is also where I get the most shit, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just, it just being a female on Twitter means be prepared to be called a bitch and be told that somebody wants to kill you or hopes you get raped at least twice a day. But that's the ugliness of the quote unquote Twitter cesspool. But otherwise, you know, if you can stomach that stuff, it's a, it's probably my favorite platform. I really, really love it. So since we've already pitched out a few of the ugly things, as I said, I want to talk about social media today in terms of the good, the bad, and the ugly. We're going to start with the ugly. Hey, listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the hotel bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their all-fair thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. So what do you think is the ugliest part of social media? So I began with saying that given the cognitive filter through which I see the world, that what I've come to see, and I've said before that I border on being technophilic, and, and I really am. I love computers. I love all forms of technology. I'm almost always an early adopter. And because of that, what I worry about is the way in which these various platforms are under the guise of ease of discovery, surfacing various stories, threads, persons, videos, and so on, that are not meant for my benefit in terms of what I like or even what I need to know, but rather surfaced in order to keep me 
looking at that site to keep me from clicking off. And that these algorithms that are designed to do this, because all of them need an algorithm. I I don't want to make algorithms scary. A recipe for beef stew is an algorithm. I don't want to make them scary, but the algorithms are behind our backs and they're designed to surface engagement, which now is no longer just like and dislike or clicking or not clicking, but amount of time spent. And I find that more and more troubling and ugly, not just for me, but I think socially and politically, we're starting to see some of the implications of that. Yeah, I just want to put a plug in for this really great book that Tim Wu wrote. I don't know, it's probably about five or six years old now, but it's called The Attention Merchants. And his argument is that, of course, Facebook is not selling you anything. And despite what people think, it's also not selling your data Facebook is just a platform. What it's selling is your attention and other people are buying your attention. And so the more it can keep your attention, and of course, when I say Facebook, I mean all of them, Facebook and Instagram being of a piece. I think Twitter is a slightly different animal, but they are merchants of your attention. I think for me, what I think is the worst aspect of social media is how it just really opens up the door for a type of mass hypnosis. It could cultivate a herd mentality so easily, so casually. And this is not to say that other forms of mass entertainment don't have the same effect. I mean, we all know the power of movies and cinema to achieve these effects. But at least with a movie, it's entertaining. I mean, I'm having some fun. I may be able to derive something from the experience of the movie theater. And if you're talking, watching a movie in the theater with others, you still have this relationship to a community. You don't really have that. With, with Facebook or with Twitter or with TikTok or, or so forth and so on. And I'm just always very much concerned. And we see this with Facebook, the ways in which, because you've got everyone with, with their minds locked onto these screens and these images are rolling across the screen and the ways in which particular types of messages are being slipped in or being cultivated and messages that may be critical of what's dominating, what we're seeing are now being gradually through the algorithms culled out of that. So that's extremely frightening for me. I mean, this is a term that I think we were using last season when we talked about conspiracy theories, but it's like the sheepification of Mm -hmm. humanity. And what worries me is that tweaking a few ones and zeros here and there, Mark Zuckerberg could have us believing anything he damn well wants us to believe. And that scares the hell out of me. And I hate it for it. And I realize my anger is based upon my fear of it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think what I would point to is the ugly is a little bit of a culmination of what both you and Rick said. So I do think that the most troubling thing about social media now is how quickly and effectively it can spread misinformation. And it does that because it's using these algorithms that are not transparent, that are not subject to audits or review, and about which there is almost no legislation or regulation to more or less find out what makes us angry, right? Or what makes us sad. And the thing is, is that it doesn't have to be that way. All the social media platforms have done a really terrible job at regulating speech. And I want to say that it's not because they can't. It's not because they can't do a better job. I mean, for example, Instagram is incredibly, almost ridiculously effective at keeping titties off of Instagram, nipples off of Instagram, Mm. right? It has perfected that algorithm. And that same attention could be used to moderate other kinds of content. The problem is, is that they've just been very selective about what they want to actually moderate. And they've really made bad choices all along. It seems to me that this is an issue that goes back to the first discussion we three had together as co-hosts, namely private cities. It seems as if one of the responses I often hear, and admittedly now these days it's coming mostly from the MAGA crowd and, and that side of the right, is that the reason why these platforms ought not regulate speech is because they're now the commons. They're mm-hmm. the, the town square. And somehow we forget that these are private companies. 
And that as private companies, they have the right to kick anyone off. They have the right to forbid any kind of speech. And yet there is this outcry that somehow if Twitter were to regulate racist speech or all forms of hate speech, then somehow that's a curtailment of the First Amendment, which it isn't. Yeah, and I think that there's the other side of content moderation or content regulation that is not about hate speech, but it's just about the true and the false. Like, I'm much, much more worried about Facebook having no interest, for example, in banning or at least filtering articles that say that the vaccines don't work or that the earth is flat or, you know, whatever. I mean, things that are more or less matters of fact. That is much more problematic to me than, and I'm not of an entirely resolved mind about this, but the other stuff, which is just like anywhere you're going to have human beings, there are going to be some assholes in the group who are going to say things that hurt other people's feelings. And that's not to say, by the way, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be more aggressive moderation of that kind of speech. But that's not really, to me, the ugliest thing about the way that these moderation algorithms are working. The ugliest thing is that they're actually promoting disinformation. Yeah. You know, I've been really influenced by Kathy O'Neill's Weapons of Math, Math, TH, Destruction, who talks a lot about the non-neutrality of algorithms and as the creative product of individual humans, surprise, they also carry along the biases of those humans that create the algorithms. And Lee, I think you're right that in one way, when social media first came on the scene and these problems were being raised, the response was, as it often is, well, more speech will drown out the bad speech. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's maybe okay. I'm not sure I even believe that, but that would be believable if we were assured that it's a level playing field. That is, Mm -hmm. that on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok, I'm provided equal access to all speech. And I think that we're now learning that these algorithms are such that it's not a a level playing field. The other side of this as well is that it's not just the algorithms, it's also the bots, right? The reason it's not a level playing field is because it's not one person, one voice out there. In some cases, it's one idea, several hundreds of thousands of voices that are repeating it, and most of them are bots. And so that's very problematic. But if I could just say one other thing about the algorithm, following on Kathy O'Neill's insight and the very excellent Weapons of Math Destruction, one of the things that came out of the conversation surrounding that book was her starting this algorithmic auditing company, basically. And I think that this is something that I wish more people understood, is that when we talk about social media regulation, it ought to start with algorithmic audits. Algorithms should be transparent. They should be open to audits. And this doesn't necessarily have to be governmental control. I mean, there are however many colleges and universities in the United States. Every single one of them has a math department. You know what math departments should be doing? Auditing algorithms. You know, it could be a public service or somebody can write their master's thesis or their PhD on these. But we can't do that because they're not transparent, because they're proprietary. And so we don't actually really understand the problem. I think this is a matter of public health, our public psychological health. So in the same way that the FDA regulates what goes in our food and the Motion Picture Association of America regulates what comes onto movies and television, I mean, why can't this be regulated and audited? Certainly Facebook and, spoiler alert, a lot of my ire will be directed toward Facebook, (laughs) hides behind this question of, oh, we support free speech and we're defenders of free speech. And it's like, well, actually, your job is not to be the First Amendment defender, right? You do have some power, some, I would say, ethical and moral obligation in terms of what information is being tracked and how it's being cultivated or called on your website. But You know, it's not even this question of a moral investment in free speech. You're really just uh, a profiteer. Yeah. And what you're doing is you're investing in any speech or language that you find to be highly profitable for the benefit of your stockholders. And that's really what makes it such an odious thing. I I don't know what Mark Zuckerberg's politics are outside of money. I have no idea what ultimately the members of the board 
of Facebook really believe. But I do know that they seem to not care about what anybody else believes as long as it's profitable for them. So that's what really makes it odious for me. Just tell me that you're the greediest corporation to ever exist. Just tell me that if human social relations fall to pieces, you don't care as long as you're able to make an extra dime off of every drop of blood that hits the ground at the federal, state, or local level. Say that, but don't give me the bullshit that you are here to make sure that all voices get heard within the commons of of public discourse because you don't believe that at all. Just say what you are. Yeah, and you don't do that either. And you don't do that. I mean, that's the thing. It's like if, if Facebook was legitimately this libertarian free speech space, then they wouldn't say no nipples. Right? Like yeah, I was going to say, say there'd like, be a lot more porn. Nipples. There'd be a, be a lot, lot more porn. Yeah, I mean, you know, but that's the thing is that they say we're trying to protect free speech, but there are all kinds of things that they've made rules about. And some of them have been really good and some of them have been really bad. Yeah, if they were trying to protect free speech, they would implement a type of fairness doctrine on the platform. Like for every bit of information that has this particular political slant, they would create an algorithm that would cultivate and enjoin a different or opposing political opinion to go along with. Like you should get two options, two ideological options on your page. If you get something from a right wing source, you should get something from a a liberal or a left wing source. And they should be there so you can at least be able to look at them side by side and then begin to make decisions. It's probably also important to note that a lot of this content moderation work is still being done by humans. Yeah. Uh, you oh, know, so, some of it has been automated, but I have a friend who was for about six months a content moderator for Facebook. And he honestly said, I thought I was either going to go insane or I was going to kill myself. He's like, yeah. you don't know. You can't even imagine spending an eight hour work day reading and seeing the absolute worst of humanity. And the problem is, is that they haven't been able to scale that moderation function because there just aren't that many humans who can do it or can't do it for very long. And they are not investing the time or the interest in offloading that kind of work to AI by developing algorithms that might actually make the platform better. But as you've both said and are 100% right, that's because they're attention merchants. They have no commitments to free speech or any kind of limited free speech. Yeah, I have a friend who also was a content editor for Facebook. And the way you just described it, I just got an image of Malcolm McDowell from A Clockwork Orange. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right, right eyes peeled back and just these images of the hyperviolence, right, yeah. always thrown into their faces. Yeah, it's horrible. It's really, really horrible. All right, that's enough ugliness. But they're making a profit, though. They're making a shitload of money on the horrible. Also ugly. Oh, my God. <laughs> friendly reminder that in addition to whatever podcast platform you use, you also have the option of listening to our weekly podcast episodes on YouTube. Just type Hotel Bar Sessions into your YouTube search bar and you will find us. And make sure to check back at least once every three episodes when we post bonus video content on our YouTube channel as a part of a series that we call Afterthoughts where Charles, Rick, and I look back on the previous three podcast episodes and consider what we woulda, coulda, and or shoulda said. We may not be that pretty, but we're hella entertaining, so please be sure to like and follow Hotel Bar Sessions' YouTube channel. And now, back to our conversation. All right, so we talked about the ugly. I I was just maybe if I could just like toss one thing back into the previous segment as ugly. I think Instagram for kids is the ugliest idea that ever happened. Oh, my God. No, no, hard pass. Anyway. Yeah. uh, So let's talk about the bad. So when I say the bad, I'm going to say things that are like maybe not ideal about social media, but don't rise to the level of ugliness that we talked about in our previous segment. So what's bad about social media? And by bad, you mean what's kind of ambiguous characteristic or quality? 
Yeah, I mean, I think one way to think about bad is like it could go both ways, but it seems to be going badly or things that are troublesome or problematic or worthy of concern, but are not, like I said, ugly in the sense that we talked about in the previous segment. Well, this may have better fit more in the ugly side, but I think that the way in which and here I have in mind particularly platforms like Facebook and YouTube are breeding grounds for radicalization of all kinds. Mm -hmm. White nationalist radicalization, let's start there. But then all across the board, they become breeding grounds precisely because of this attention machine. We, the participants on these sites, are chemically rewarded for our attention to various things and we're repaid with more and more of the same kind of thing. And so from the moment I watch an entire white nationalist video, from then on, I'm just going to be fed more and more and more extreme versions of this. And so maybe that's more ugly than bad, but I certainly think it's bad. Yeah. What about you, Charles? I mean, what troubles me, and I'm sympathetic to understand the complications about it. And this goes back to the question of how do we begin to regulate this, right? How do we begin to work through Congress? Now, at the same time, and this sounds crazy coming from me, I, I would not want this to become a space that's completely dominated by governmental forces and inclinations because that could go either way. But at the same time, I like the fact that it still becomes a space where it's possible for certain type of voices, even marginalized, can still have some space to try and create community. So, you know, that freedom, but then the danger of that freedom, but then the protections to maintain this sense of the freedom and the possibility of it makes it a very complex question for me. And I, I guess that's part of what I think is part of the ugly. We're on the bad, though. Oh, let me tell you, let's change my whole shit up. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I had a whole different thing for the bad. No, no, this is, so this is for the bad, is what okay. I mean. What about you, I, Lee? Well, I mentioned this to you before we recorded today, but, and we'll put a link to this in the notes to this episode, but I think probably the thing that I find concerning, not ugly, although it does sometimes show its ugliness, but something that's bad and I want to characterize it as bad rather than ugly because I think it's fixable, is what Zashim Alim calls disinterpretation. So this idea that it's very difficult to have nuanced, complex, good faith discussions on Twitter. And he says this is because people engage in what he calls disinterpretation, which he defines as incorrectly interpreting something within adversarial, antisocial, and exploitative ethos. And he says that part of this is because there's nothing that is outside of the forces of polarization in this country. And one example that he gives is like, look, if I want to say something critical about the book White Fragility, for example, I'm immediately going to get a thousand reply tweets that are like, you're against diversity in the workplace. And so there's this incredibly ungenerous reading of every position and then a tendency to adversarially box people into positions that are not only not correct interpretations of what they said, but leave no room for any kind of conversation going forward. That's something that I find really problematic. I'm not entirely convinced that this is because of the Twitter format. So a lot of people will say, yeah, well, Facebook was better because you could give longer responses and more words, more nuance. But, uh, you know, we were all in Facebook conversations. They were just as shitty in some circumstances. <laughs> so I'm not sure that it's just the format of Twitter, especially now that everyone's learned how to thread their tweets. Uh, you can have longer, more interesting conversations, but it is a part of the ethos. I agree with Aleem about that. I will say thank you for sharing that thread. And, and I think I agree with you. I'm not sure it's because of this organization, as it were, of, of Twitter. You know, I read these things and I think, where were you before Twitter happened? Because this has actually been the nature of public discourse in the United States probably since the 90s. Whether it be the rise of, of right-wing talk radio, whether it be the rise of Fox, whether it be, remember that show, Tucker Carlson's first show, was it Crossfire? Mm-hmm. I mean, the rise of the modern right wing really cultivated and developed this way of engaging in public conversations. So I'm not so convinced that Twitter is like the sign of the end of it all. But I will also say that I agree that people come to Twitter in many cases to proselytize or to defend. 
And it's not a space for reflection or contemplation or for nuanced engagement. So I kind of half agree and I kind of half say, hmm. This all points to an interesting phenomenon that the social media platforms are not identical in their design, in their algorithms. You know, my friend Christopher Long, who's been on social media from the beginning, and I think along with you, Lee, is one of the philosophers who's been a tremendous proponent of philosophy's presence on social media and and the possibilities of social media for philosophy. He's always been pointing out the ways in which each platform, and by the way, I would expand this beyond social media, I think Mac OS is a platform. I think Windows is a platform. Each platform has a set of affordances and a set of denials. And yeah. we're not always aware of what the platform affords and what it denies. And then when it comes to algorithms, we're not aware of what it surfaces and what it prevents from surfacing. And so I think that, you know, Twitter, at least initially, did not afford longer discussions. But I also want to reject that you can't say something nuanced in 120 characters or less. I mean, I think of, on the one hand, an author like Ernest Hemingway, who was the master of really short sentences that were nuanced and packed a wallop. For sale, baby shoes never worn. No, for (laughs) sale, baby shoes never used. Uh... I agree. And Hemingway is the example that came to my mind as well. And no insult to the vast multitude of people who use Twitter, including myself. Most of us aren't Hemingway. Most of us do not have the facility or the control or the command of any of the language that we write or speak in to facilitate that level of complexity in the briefest amount of words. So good try. (laughs) Well, No, all I'm indicating is that therefore it's not the platform. So it's not the platform that doesn't allow for nuance. I think that in many ways, part of Twitter's difficulty is that it too seamlessly matches the pace of our everyday existence. And that pace is not always entirely helpful. And that pace is also preventative of reflection. I think of any number of cases, Lee brought up one, I forget in which episode, but it was this season, Justine. Oh, yeah. The woman who said she wasn't going to get AIDS because she was white. Right. Right. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. So, I mean, it took a plane ride. Okay, it was a long plane ride. I bet if we followed that whole thread, it was within an hour or two that she was already bound to be fired and canceled. um, Canceled. Yeah. And that rapidity certainly does not encourage reflection. Yeah, it's the platform of hot takes. And and hot takes are not reflective. Yeah. They haven't cooked long enough. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's a flash cook. You know, we just charl something, but the insides are still kind of uncooked. It speaks to the nature of communication itself. And the communication happens on so many different platforms. It's not just the language. It's not just the signs, but it's also the sounds. It's also the motions. So if you're trying to communicate on Twitter, you know, you have the limitation of only 240 characters. You have the fact that it seamlessly flows into the movement of modern life. You have the fact that it's the platform for hot takes. But there's so much that you can't convey. You can't convey accurately sarcasm. You can't convey irony. You can't convey grief. So there are all these things that are missing. And I was thinking about the Phaedrus, the platonic dialogue. And I love the conversation about the benefits of spoken language of orality versus the benefits of the problematics of literacy and how the written word cannot defend itself. It is what it is and it becomes permanent versus orality, which has all this flexibility and this nuance and this humanity within it. And I thought that that's really part of what he's getting to that this really isn't communication the way beneficial or elucidates its real meaning to people who are receiving it or engaged in it. See, that's interesting because I do think conversations happen on Twitter, sometimes at exactly the pace that they would happen in real life. So unlike, for example, the argument of the Phaedrus, which is like, once you write something down, it's the dead word. It just kind of goes out there and anyone can read it and anyone can interpret it in any way. And the speaker has been removed from the conversation 
even though it is the written word on Twitter, it's the written word in a form that very much imitates a spoken conversation, which, of course, Plato could have never imagined, right? Anything like instant messaging. Except outside of DM, if I post something on Twitter and maybe Charles picks it up, And he's like, you know, Rick, that was really interesting. Or even like, Rick, I think you need to think about this other thing. The way Twitter doesn't mimic a conversation is precisely because between him and I, then the mob can come down, right? And and it could get on either one of us, in which case it's not like a conversation. It's more like Brian in the life of Brian preaching in the marketplace and being (laughs) shouted down by the crowd. (laughs) But it's also like if you try to have a conversation with someone at a party and two or three drunk people find themselves interrupting and butting in and disrupting the conversation. So I think that space of not solitude, let's call it dualitude. With these... (laughs) I'm just inventing the fuck out of words this year. I don't care. But that's necessary for reflection, and you're not going to get that in that space. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with you. The phenomenon that you're describing is quite common on Twitter, but it's also just as often the case that it's like that party where you're having a conversation with someone else and some random person that you don't know butts in and actually it brings in something interesting. And you're like, oh, hey, I hadn't read that. I didn't know that. So, yeah, maybe this is a very good example of the bad, right? Like this could be better. It sometimes is better. It could be worse. It sometimes is quite ugly. But the way that it is right now is just difficult to manage. And while we're on this Thread. thread. Yeah, I was, I was trying not to use thread, but there's, there's no other way to do it, right? Uh, while we're on this thread, I do want to say that another thing that I would put in the bad category is what people sometimes call the Twitter cesspool, which I think is what we've been describing. And one of the responses to that has been for people to respond, well, Twitter is not real life. I do want to say that one of the things that I think is bad about social media right now is that people have a tendency to contrast real life with social media. There's IRL and then there's social media. And I think that social media is real life. And increasingly, what happens on social media affects what happens IRL far more than that same phenomenon in reverse. Give us an example. The 2016 election, the resistance to the vaccine, the fact that people think birds are not real. (laughs) What? Birds? Yes. You don't know this. It's like flat earthers. You know, there are people who believe that birds are not real. Those are people who are just saying shit just to say shit. I mean, it's, yeah, that's (laughs) probably true. You know, Lee, I'll give you a counterexample. So when I was younger, one of my older sisters and I, we got really into the soap opera All My Children. And so we would sit at the dinner table and a conversation would go like this. Did you see what Erica did today? And my sister would be like, I know, I can't believe that Adam didn't do something about it. And my mom would look at us and say, are these real people or that stupid soap opera? Yeah, yeah. So that's a distinction between IRL and something that's not real. Although, you know. All My Children was one of the greatest soap operas of all time. But anyhow, <laughs> it, it's real in my heart. Whereas, I, Lee, I think you're right that these communications are as real as any other kinds of communication. To say that Twitter is not real life is like saying that when the three of us are sitting in the bar talking, that that's not real. Yeah, I mean, social media is not a fantasy land. You're interacting with real people. You're having real interactions. And those interactions spill over into what we call in real life. But it is also a part of that in real life. I mean, we're coming up on social media being about 20 years old. So that means that for people like me in my 40s, half of my life has been on social media. It would be absolutely ridiculous for me to say that who I am, IRL, is not in large part formed has been formed because of social media, on social media, through social media, whatever. And now, like, that's a whole different story when you're talking about somebody who's 20, who's always been on social media. So, yeah, it's a a peeve of mine that people say IRL. And I do it, too, because it's like the lingo. But social media is real life. No, I agree with that. When I hear people say social media or Twitter isn't real life, I interpret them as saying this is not 
the absolute exemplar of how a majority of people feel. Because you hear people say that mostly in regards to politics. Yeah, I definitely think that that is one sense in which when people say Twitter is not real life, that's what they mean. I think there's another sense in which they mean Twitter is not real life. And, you know, I'm just using Twitter, but social media in general is not real life as a way of saying, why are you spending so much time on this? This is unimportant. This is not real. This is a game. And, you know, okay, I'm going to be judgy, judge, judge here. But I feel sometimes about people who are like, I'm not on social media at all. I feel sometimes the same way about people who say that as I do about people who are like, I don't have a television. I'm like, are you proud of that? You should not be proud of that. (laughs) Like, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's like to my ears, it's like somebody saying, oh, I don't read. Uh, It's just like, why is that a virtue that you're not on social media? It seems like actually a vice. Well, I could, they could also say, but I get news and information from other sources. So No, but it's not just about news and information. Yeah. It's about saying there's this absolutely central so, part of human society today that I have decided has too many problems or I can't deign to participate in it. it it's always this kind of superiority. It's like people who say they don't have TVs. It's like, I don't watch TV or I don't have a television. You know, it's a virtue signaling. Yeah, it can be self-righteous. I agree with that. So let me just go on the record as saying that my not being on social media, I do so out of moral inferiority, not out of moral superiority. (laughs) I'm just not strong enough for it. Um, But you're not not on social media, right? Like you're not not on social media. You're just not very active on social media. But you are on it. You know what happens. You do step in every now and then. So you're shame signaling, not virtue signaling, but shame signaling. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that you're right, Lee, that I'm not not on social media. So <laughs> I will say in the last four years, maybe, the only tweets I have read have been from you and Charles. <laughs> and I only have posted about this podcast, I think. But like you said that you use Instagram in your classes. Well, that's social media. I I post to Instagram because the first year program asks me to. And I do that once a year. That's for sure. And I do look at the doggest. So I lurk on the doggest on Instagram. But otherwise, the reason why I'm not on Twitter or I'm not on Facebook is not because I think they're yucky forms of a so-called cultural production. I, I mean, I think there are many quite positive aspects, which I think we'll probably get to in, in just a minute. I just can't do it because unlike you, Lee, I can't put the bad aside and say, you know, that's just how people are or how Twitter is. The other thing I do want to say is that I don't feel like I'm missing anything, actually. Mm -hmm. And none of what we've talked about or will talk about indicates that I've missed anything. And one way in which I think, Lee, you're exactly right, is that Twitter is real life, is because if something happens on Twitter that is important, I will hear about it in the other sources of media that I engage. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. We're there often to solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. All right, so at long last, we can finally talk about social media in a positive way. I am super excited to talk about the good, the good, the good about social media. So yeah, guys, what's good? What I find to be good is getting access and 
being brought into conversations or made aware of conversations that I probably would not have been hip to outside of the stray comment coming across my Twitter feed. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole community of very politicized sex workers, right, who get engaged mm-hmm. with conversations around the conditions of labor, legalization and all these interesting dynamics. So I would have never known any of that. But I find it an interesting category of labor that I follow and have been fortunate enough to contribute text to those who've been organizing reading groups in this community. So that's so that's a good thing. Right. The communities that can arise that are not in our natural organic movement within society. I agree wholeheartedly economic, social, cultural, sexual communities can be crafted around people who otherwise would feel isolated in their interests. That I I think is one of the really positive things. The other thing is, I think for a lot of our fellow humans, not having to present their bodies in order to communicate to other people is incredibly helpful and liberating. And I think that's a really important aspect of social media as well. I would not have thought to phrase it that way, but that's really well said. I think that's also really true. So obviously, I think there are a lot of good things about social media. I really love what social media has done to the English language. I love that we have all these new terms. Just the idea of hashtags, I think, is a totally fantastic concept. I love the slang that has come along with social media that has worked, you know, like virtue signaling. We just literally used that a a minute ago. That has worked its way into IRL, you know, in our regular real lives in ways that actually explain our real lives better. I think that social media is a really good source for organizing and solidarity in in the way that you both just mentioned. But I think right now, what today anyway, what I want to focus on that I think is the most positive thing about social media is that it really gives us an alternative to the nation state or the corporation. Now, I am aware that the social media platforms are themselves corporations, but to most users, the experience and the activity of being on social media allows us to build communities, to think about communities, to think about the relationship between the individual and the group, to think about things like laws and regulation and justice and the good and the beautiful, all of those things in ways that are different than our regular nation state centered ways of thinking about those things. And then, you know, I suppose finally what I would say is I, at this point, have people that I've literally never met in person that I consider really good friends that I only came to know because of social media and who I would welcome into my house today if they happen to be in Memphis. And really, many of them, I kind of hate that we've never actually met in person, but real relationships that have been built over long periods of time, I think that's a huge part of it. So this is a, a, a huge aside from one of the things you said, but I listened to this podcast on the history of the English language. And I never knew about how much of our language comes out of the technology of printing. And I'm talking about like the word paragraph, chapter, mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot to do with punctuation, period, mm-hmm. comma. Mm-hmm. All of this has to do with the technology of printing that we needed then to come up with new language for. And so I'm with you, Lee. I really do like that our language has been really changed. And I think we're starting to see our language change more rapidly because of the spread of terms so quickly and so broadly. I think it's really great for language. One of my worries that is the flip side of that is that it just maybe puts the nail in the coffin or makes the final advance toward the total Englification of the entire world. Hmm. I think to say that you have a large social media presence means that you write in English. Uh Uh-huh. Really? I, I think the conversations that I see that are from people around the globe primarily take place in English. On rare occasions, am I involved in discussions in German or Polish or, well... I would love to be in a thread in Latin, but I haven't found one yet. Nerd. I think there are four or five people. It's it's a dead thread. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. He, he, you just teed that one up for him, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> 
Rami has given us the signal that it's last call. So while we're finishing our drinks, Lee, is there anything you want to say that we didn't have a chance to touch on? Well, I just want to say, Rami, you can find me at Dr. Liam Johnson on Twitter. So make sure that you follow me. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. Uh, No, I think that this is something that I could just talk about for days. But if I could just kind of repeat one thing that maybe the most important point that I wanted to make today, which is that I really do think that social media is real life. And the quicker we start adjusting to that, the quicker we're going to be prepared for the very soon to come metaverse in which we're all going to be living. I suppose maybe if I could, one other thing that I wanted to say is that I really am worried, given the last few social media congressional hearings, uh, I'm really worried that our legislators have a less than functional, like, like it's such a pathetic understanding of social media, of technology, of algorithms, of AI. And social media is driving AI development that I yeah. I, I don't think that they're going to be able to catch up because they're so slow and they're so dumb. You don't think Senator John Kennedy is going to pull through on this? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I say, well, I say, sir. I say that, boy. I say that. You know, I, but also I think the problematic part of that is that so many, especially the right wing, so many of these politicians benefit from the wide openness of it as well. That yeah. if they're, if, if, if regulatory models get placed or applied to these platforms, then they're going to see a lot of their support their position, their voice is really limited, and they don't want that either. Yeah. So they're playing dumb, much like Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana. They are playing dumb. Yeah. All right. Well, Rami, thanks for the drinks. We're out of here. Take care, y'all. Take care. Thanks, Rami. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.